Hello, and this is the opening line. VegCast. Of VegCast 79. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, VegCast 79 does indeed have a full menu coming up for you as the tagline goes. And there has been... A lot of talk recently about uh, animals' cognition and what animals are thinking, especially large mammals, taking off from the unfortunate and deadly attack at SeaWorld uh, that killed a trainer there. People are starting to say, you know, what are these animals thinking? Is it really a good idea to have them in captivity doing tricks for us? And uh, a new book just out today, Second Nature by Jonathan Balcombe, examines uh, various kinds of animal cognition, intelligence, emotion, and uh, so forth. And we will be talking with Jonathan in our featured interview today. But that's not all, of course. We also will be checking in on the Vegan Pledge, which we tipped you to a few episodes back here in Philadelphia. We're going to find out how that all turned out. And we also have a new music track from Yvonne Smith, the traveling and singing vegetarian and as always a science fact this one is about dog growls and how they may convey more information to dogs than they do to us so that's all coming up on vegcast 79 please i ask you to sit back relax crank up your mp3 player as we deliver this episode of Now, as I mentioned, the orca attack at SeaWorld has got some mainstream media commentators talking about animals and animals' uh, emotions, animals' inner lives, and really raising the question seriously about whether these large mammals, at the very least, should be kept in captivity and uh, what may be going on with them. And so this seems like a good time, especially since this book is just out, to check in with Jonathan Balcombe. And we will hear that now. Okay, right now joining us by phone is Jonathan Balacone, the author of Second Nature. Jonathan, welcome to VegCast. Thanks for having me, Vance. Thanks for being here. We wanted to talk to you uh, even since uh, your last book, uh, Pleasurable Kingdom, uh, but now you have another one that has just come out, and uh, we want to talk about uh, essentially animal sentience and uh can you just explain to us what's the what's the real distinction between uh your last book and this one sure well pleasurable kingdom focused on the positive side of sentience sentience is the capacity to feel things be they good things or bad things pains and pleasures it's a whole spectrum sensory experience that's captured in that term so whereas pleasurable kingdom focused on pleasurable things positive feelings uh, second nature is broader and it focus on, is on mostly recent scientific studies plus you know a number of anecdotes and stories that show animals to be intensely sentient that is in terms of intelligence awareness uh, their communication skills their cooperation even virtues uh, mm-hmm. and emotions of course things like that so right. um, it's really a, a broader a broader brush approach than, than Pleasurable Kingdom. And of course, it includes uh, a, a pretty lengthy discussion in the latter chapters about the implications of, of animals' sentience. Right. And we'll, we'll get to that. But I want to know, um, a lot of this was uh, familiar to me because it, it's an area that I've been uh, trying to keep up with. 
but for the average person who uh, you know may be encountering your work and may say you know animals they're just machines do you have is there like one study one anecdote one thing that that you would bring up uh, that would help kind of uh, crack through that, that wall of denial that we have it's a good question. I mean, the different things touch different people in different ways. So, you know, the example I'll give right now may not be the right one for, for everybody, but it's one that I found pretty compelling. Um, it's a study of emotions in baboons, in particular negative emotions, that, that is grief. Uh, it's, it's already known that women, uh, if they lose a child, uh, if they lose their baby, um, if the, the baby dies for some reason, obviously a terribly emotionally traumatic experience for the mother, and uh, women show increased levels of what are called glucocorticoids, these are hormones associated with grief for a month or more following their loss. Well, it turns out uh, by studying baboons who, who have lost mothers who've lost their infants, they show the same pattern. Their glucocorticoid levels go up for about a month uh, following the loss. Their closest allies and friends in the baboon society also show elevated levels. So there's sort of an osmotic effect um, among, the, among the baboons. And uh, another parallel between the behavior of women, the response of women to this loss, and the response of baboons is that um, women will expand their social networks. There's more phone calls going on. Flowers are delivered. Um, just generally a, a sharing of the grief, and this is thought to be therapy. And, and the same pattern is shown, or a parallel pattern is shown in baboons, where the, the, the mother who's lost her infant increases her social networks during the time, uh, the weeks following the loss. They, they groom a lot more with others. They receive grooming and give grooming. And uh, this is thought to be therapeutic for them. Uh, grooming is, has already been shown to increase endorphins and other uh, pleasure-associated chemicals in the bloodstream. So it's a form of therapy. So for me, for me that's very compelling on, on two levels. One is that it parallels the behavior of, of our vaunted species, the human. Uh, and, and second, it's, it's um, a long-term response. It's not like an instant emotional change. It indicates that it, it, it uh, undermines the common assumption that non-human animals live only in the moment, that they're only in the present, when in fact studies like this, and there are others I could cite, studies like this show that these animals have long-term dispositions, moods, they have good days and bad days. Uh, and I think that's compelling, and it shows the, the rich, uh, one just aspect of the rich sentience that non-humans have. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, take off from when you said that one of the compelling factors is that it parallels uh, something uh, that we know as humans to be, to involve sentience and feeling and emotion and thinking and everything. Um, and I'm wondering how much of what we are learning about animals uh, is is really going to give us a, a full picture if our you know our our yardstick for anything that we that we want to ascribe to animals they have to match up something that we do it almost seems like there may be ways that animals are more sentient or more emotional or whatever but just because we don't happen to behave in, in that particular circumstance in that particular way we wouldn't recognize it so how how far can we actually go in recognizing uh, animal sentience if we're always trying to just measure it against our own. Yeah, it's a very important point. Uh, I certainly don't mean to imply by uh, paralleling a, a baboon's behavior to a human's that we are the gold standard in terms of sentience and, and other capacities uh, related to sentience. Far mm-hmm. from it. Uh, one of the points I made in Pleasurable Kingdom is 
is that, and I make it again in Second Nature, is that is that animals have sensory systems that are different from us. They've evolved to be good at detecting and, and relating to aspects of their environment in, in their own ways. You know, we don't echolocate, and bats are superb echolocators, so are dolphins. We can't detect magnetic fields in the earth that birds and other animals use for migration, for instance. We're unable to detect the, the turbulence trail that a fish may leave in the, in the water in the deep oceans where light doesn't penetrate, but whales and certainly seals can do that. So there's a number of sensory capacities they have that we don't even have. So we're, we're, we can only speculate on what some of the sensory realms are like for animals. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an important point that needs to be made. Sentience itself, the, the whole tacit assumption that people so often have, if people are thinking about a sentience at all, but, but just if you ask someone off the street, most people are going to assume that we humans are at the pinnacle of sentience. That is to say that our sensitivity to painful and, and pleasurable stimuli is higher than any other species. Uh, that's, that's absolute nonsense. There's no good scientific basis for that uh, being the case. And, and, and right back to the 17th century or the 18th century when um, Humphrey Primet put it this way in making the same point, he said, uh, superiority of rank or station exempts no creature from the sensibility of pain, nor does inferiority render the feelings thereof the less exquisite. In the current era, we have a British biologist named John Webster who said this, essentially a, a less tactful paraphrasing of the same sentiment, and that is that he said, people have assumed intelligence is linked to the ability to suffer, and that because animals have smaller brains, they suffer less than humans. That is a pathetic piece of logic, end quote. That's a profound concept that I, I, I think people need to be aware of. Just because our brains are bigger, it doesn't mean that pain for a pig or a dog or a mouse, for that matter, is any less than ours. And the, and the moral implications of that are immense. Well, I mean, what you're essentially uh, combating is a, a quantum difference of opinion, basically. Uh, the default position of science, of course, is that humans are... Uh, the pinnacle of evolution and everything, you know, that, that has to be compellingly overturned before any, anything else will be considered. But, uh, you know, the, the long-standing concept of animals has been that they're just these, these things that act on instinct and they're not like us at all. Um, so moving from that to one where you say, yes, they are like us in many of these ways, that's, that's one kind of progression. But I'm wondering if you know, there's a further progression to say, you know, it's not just that they may be almost as sentient as us, but we may be just, you know, one of a variety of, of ways of being in the world. And that, that almost seems uh, sacrilegious in, in colloquial terms. I don't mean it's necessarily just going against religion. It's going against a lot of the, uh, the ways that atheists think, too. It's, it's saying that humans are not the center of the universe here on Earth is uh you know it's it's like you're not allowed to say that and i notice in the book you you sometimes seem seem to be right about to come out and say that and then you you seem to back off just a little bit is that was that a, a carefully constructed diplomatic uh position that you took sure i mean i i i wasn't aware of that and i i hadn't heard that yet and i'll probably hear it again and i appreciate feedback like that and you know, whenever we write something, whenever we have a conversation, we're trying to sell something. I don't mean in the economic sense. We're trying to convince somebody of our, of, to come to our view or to see things the way we see it. That's just the nature of, you know, of life and, and communication and change. 
And so one always tries to express things in such a way as to get the reader, in this case, open to one's ideas. So it is a bit of a dance, and uh, it's it's difficult. It's this issue is a very tough one because. Uh, you know, I don't want to be just preaching to the converted. I want non-vegetarians to read my book. Mm-hmm. Um, I want non-vegans to read my book. I want people to read my book who have not thought about animals this way. Getting the book into the ha- their hands and getting them to open up to the message is, is always a challenge. So uh, it, what you may have seen there may have been my attempt to uh, not come on too strong at certain points. I, I will say this. I think this book, the, the, the ethical message of this book is is more strongly stated than that of Pleasurable Kingdom, and, I, and I'm pleased with that. Right. I've already been, um, the word sermonizing has been used in one early review of this book. It was a positive review, but that was the one slight flaw in the book that was articulated, that I occasionally sermonize. So there you go. That's what you get for <laughs> recommending people do this and people think about that. Well, one of the uh, the points that uh, that the book makes is that um, and it's one that I've uh, tried to get into sometimes here on VegCast, is that uh, it's not like animals are just developing these uh, capabilities and so forth. They, we're finding out things that we just didn't know before. And uh, it, a lot of this, uh, a lot of what you write calls into question our, uh, our approach to, to studying animals. And uh, occasionally you do just point out how inhuman and inhumane uh, we can be in some of the, the ways that we devise to go about that. But um, I, I have to say, I, I did laugh out loud at one point in the book when you talked about uh, scientists trying to evaluate how well chimps could recognize faces. And uh, you said they it, they it eventually occurred to them to use chimp faces instead of human faces because they had just... Uh, used human faces on the on the premise that human faces are easier to distinguish, and that seems like such a a, a perfect little uh, example of how our, our kind of tunnel vision can keep us from seeing things that are they're not that hard to find out. They're just they're right there, but because we're attached to this worldview, it's uh, it's sometimes hard to to get out of it. Do you, do you see us like? emerging from that at all or is it uh, just lone pioneers out there like yourself that are that are uh, sermonizing about it oh, I think we are starting to emerge from that um, and, and that's reflected in, in some pretty significant developments in science in the last 20-30 years and I'm thinking here specifically of the science of animal behavior which is my field you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, in fact, mo- through most of the 20th century, it was considered taboo to ask questions about, and never, let alone study, qu- phenomena about animal minds and animal emotions and animal feelings. And that's changed in the last uh, in the last decades. And, and now there's even a journal called Animal Cognition, which, you know, every month there's a, a bunch of papers coming out uh, exploring some aspect of how animals think. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, and a growing number of emotional studies, books that address some animal emotions and articles that address animal emotions as well. So, mm-hmm. so we are changing. Um, but yeah, in hindsight, it seems absurd to be testing chimp face recognition with human faces. Um, and it just shows how anthropocentric we can be. Uh, you know, we think our faces are the distinct ones, but for a, for a chimp with their, with their perceptions, their world, uh, a chimp's face is, is far more distinctive. And as you probably read, I, I also mentioned that chimps exceed us in the ability to recognize faces that are upside down. And if you think about chimps hanging from a tree upside down, you can see why they might be 
might be better at, at that. Right. Even raw intelligence, chimpanzees have been shown to have a superior short-term memory. They, they far outscore us in a, in a, in a numerical short-term memory test uh, using a computer, and that's pretty mind-blowing. So even the, in the most vaunted criterion that we so often hold up is what makes us special, that is raw intelligence. Uh, we, we're now discovering that certain non-humans are going to exceed us in some of those measures. Mm-hmm. And it, but it seems like our it's not just uh, necessarily the default or the egocentrism that might come to any uh, mammal that has us like has had us looking at animals in this way. But it seems that uh, a lot of that denial is propped up by the fact that we have institutions uh, in place that people have to essentially have to participate in or make a conscious choice to to become a, a person who is against society uh, that and these institutions are you know just completely exploiting abusing and killing animals constantly um, and I, obviously one of the great things that your book is doing is uh, I think making it hard for people to hang on to uh, that level of kind of blind denial um, but you actually go so far you say um, uh, so some, you mentioned something about legislation to curb meat uh, consumption being enacted and kind of throw that out as a question. I'm wondering, w- is that something that you would actually uh, advocate legislation? Totally. If I could, if I could pass legislation to curb meat consumption, I would not hesitate, and I and I wouldn't just do that for animals. I'd do it for people as well, because ultimately, uh, this meat consumption has got to be curbed because it's it's harmful to humans and and the planet we're trying to live on as well as as being harmful to animals. You know, and this 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 is where the rubber meets the road in in this whole bigger issue about a, our relationship with animals, because what we've been talking about here with animal emotions and animal cognition and such, and these new uh, things that we're uncovering about animals, showing that they're highly sentient, it puts our current treatment of animals so grossly out of step with what we now know about them. Um, and and really, this is a point that I've seen made elsewhere. We don't we don't really need to change people's values. People most people abhor cruelty to animals. They hate it. They they don't want it. They they don't want to support it, and yet that's precisely what they do when they walk into the supermarket. 99% of all the meat and dairy products available today are from factory farms, and people growingly are, uh, although frustratingly slowing, slowly, are becoming aware of just how horrible and cruel the conditions are in factory farms. People have got to st- stop and think about what their relationship to animals and what decisions uh, they can make to make a difference from animals, and that obviously starts in the supermarket. Well, let me just, before we go, we're, uh, we're about out of time, but uh, when you say how uh, cruel conditions are on factory farms, I mean, that, that's a kind of a line that uh, we do hear a lot, and even that's uh, getting out in the mainstream. Uh, but as you and I know, you know, the so-called humane treatment of animals raised for food is, uh, you know, it may be a, a different in degree, but it's still <laughs> inhumane. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, specifically because you talk uh, a couple of times about how animals should not be used for utilitarian needs, I'm wondering whether you're, you're thinking on how we uh, relate to animals and animal advocacy has evolved even since Pleasurable Kingdom, which um, did have a, you know, an introduction by Peter Singer. Um, and here you seem to be moving a little further to say that you know, the, our whole relationship is flawed and we can't justify uh, this doing things to animals just because they may have some tangible benefit to us. Is that, 
Is there a progression there, or am I just uh, reading too much into that? Um, it may seem like a progression from what you're reading, it's not, but it's not that my, my views have changed. Uh, I've always been more of a deontologist. I believe that animals have some basic fundamental uh, rights, the sort of uh, basic rights that we uh, ascribe to, to, to humans, the right to a decent life, the right to a freedom, uh, the right not to be used for someone else's gain, um, and the right not to be tortured, those sort of basic fundamental rights. Uh, I've always felt that animals, uh, sentient animals, of course, uh, have. So it's not so much that my values have changed. I, maybe I'm just being a little bit more uh, pushy with it in, in, this, in, this latest, in this latest book. Doing more sermonizing. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> suppose great. so. Well, I have to say, I, we, I often will ask people, you know, how they came to uh, veganism or how they came to their area of interest. I realize I didn't do that because I, you you share so much about uh, your your life and your kind of the way your consciousness evolved in, in these two books vis-a-vis uh, -vis animals. Um, so I feel like I already know all these things. I neglected to bring that up. But is there anything that uh, that you would like to share that we we should be sure to include so people know like the real Jonathan Balcom? Um, you know, I think in terms of my relationship to animals, uh, those, those books in particular, the latest one, which does have a pretty biographical, autobiographical bent in the first chapter, um, right. you know, pretty much covers the key points about my relationship to animals. Uh, I've been passionate about them from my very earliest memory. I would never step on an insect and couldn't wait to see the dinosaurs when my family arrived in Toronto at the age of eight. And, um, you know, I'm a keen bird watcher now and love to go out in nature. So, you know, I mean, that's maybe what one would expect of a biologist who, who's passionate about animals. But uh, I don't know if that sheds any more light on it. But uh, animals are, are where it's at for me. They're, they're, they're an endless source of fascination and pleasure. All right. And for all of us, and uh, I'm sure for VegCast listeners, and I want to thank you for, for joining us, Jonathan. That is Second Nature. It's out uh, just now from Macmillan. And, Jonathan, thanks very much for taking time out to talk with us on VegCast. Thanks for having me, Vance. Okay, thank you. We all need love Like we need sunshine And throughout all time we believe We all need love It's what we
It's what completes us, makes us one. Love life, love all, love everyone. Make all the love you give unconditional. The deep. Yvonne Smith, whom many of you will remember as the traveling vegetarian. She's now forging a singing career. We played one of her songs uh, at the end of last year. We're keeping tabs on her, and uh, we will link you to her site and her ongoing musical forays in our show notes, so check that out. But in the meantime, let's check in with the science. Our science fact for VegCast 79 is dogs understand growls even if we don't. That's the headline on this story from MSNBC.com with the subhead, Studies indicate animal calls are far more complex than previously thought. Let's read the opening of this Discovery Channel story. One dog growl may sound like another to human ears, but a new study shows for the first time that dogs receive specific information in growls that conveys meanings like get away from my bone or back off. Now, let me just interpolate here that, to me, those two meanings kind of sound the same. Back off, you know, you would say that if uh, you were guarding a bone. But uh, apparently these are two different uh, messages that they've, uh, they've taped here from different dogs. The study accepted for publication in the journal Animal Behavior presents the first experimental indication that domestic dogs rely on context-dependent signals when they growl at each other. The findings add to the growing body of evidence that animal calls are far more complex than previously thought. For example, prior research suggests chimpanzees communicate information about food quality, while birds, prairie dogs, chickens, squirrels, primates, and other animals likely share information about predator types. And again, interpolating here, I don't know if I've mentioned this on a previous science fact, but one of the uh, facts that you'll find in uh, Jonathan Balcom's books is that uh, prairie dogs, it has been found that prairie dogs actually have a specific call. Uh, They warn each other about different kinds of predators, and they have a specific call that means man with gun. Anyway, returning to this story, for this experiment, 41 adult pet dogs of various breeds were recruited from the database, databases of the Clever Dog Lab in Vienna and the Family Dog Project in Budapest. 
The researchers placed a freshly cooked meaty and juicy large calf bone in a bowl. As the test subject dogs approached the bone, the researchers played back the previously recorded growls through a hidden speaker. The hungry canines only jumped when the bone-guarding growl was played, even though the threatening stranger-associated growl sounded just as menacing to human ears. While it may remains unclear how dogs communicate such precise information, Pongratz said one possibility is that dogs are very sensitive to the emotions of other canines, and that is study co-author Peter Pongratz, a behavioral biologist at Jotvos Lorand University. Meanwhile, Daniel Mills, a professor of veterinary behavioral medicine at the University of Lincoln, said the study adds to a growing recognition of the greater complexity of vocalization by dogs. And here he's quoted saying, I believe that some of the unanswered questions about assessing how vocalization relates to the inner emotional states of dogs will be addressed, and with this knowledge we will gain much greater insight into the inner lives of dogs and other species. Hopefully this will also lead to a greater appreciation of and respect for non-human animals in general. Now, I don't have much to add to that. Uh, You know our position here at VegCast on uh, what we're finding out in animal studies about animal communication. Uh, Let's just say that it seems apparent that we still have a lot to learn about what we thought were very simple, basic, instinctual communication patterns among uh, at least the mammals that uh, that share our kingdom and uh, that we should probably approach these uh, with a little more open-mindedness and humility and perhaps we'll be able to syntactically take apart the very growl that means get away from my bone on a future edition of Science Okay, now back in December on VegCast, you may remember we talked to Brandon Gittleman about uh, horse carriage protests, and we mentioned a program called the Vegan Pledge that was coming up and said we would have more on that later, and it is time now to find out about this program that ran from mid-January to mid-February, and we go now to the streets of Philadelphia to check in with Layla Fussfeld. Okay, we are here on the streets of Philadelphia talking with Layla Fussfeld. Layla, welcome to VegCast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for being here. And we just wanted to check in with you about a program uh, that you were uh, very uh, instrumental to called the Vegan Pledge. What's up with that? Well, um, in January and February, January 16th to February 13th, we held a program where 30 people who were not yet vegan pledged to go vegan for the month. And each week we had meetings, including cooking classes, seminars, discussions, and helped these people get through their vegan pledge. Everyone got a mentor, everyone got a care package, and um, we basically just finished that up a couple weeks ago. Okay, and from your perspective, was the program overall a success? Did it meet your expectations? Did it kind of fall short? What's the... What do you think of it happened? The program was a tremendous success. We had um, a lot of people really excited about it, not just the people participating, but the people who were volunteering to help out as mentors. Uh, I've heard from a lot of the pledges that they are staying vegan, that this made their transition to veganism a lot easier, and that they want to get involved volunteering to do the pledge next year. 
And so we are hoping to not only continue the pledge in Philadelphia, but possibly also expand it beyond. Great. So you have, I mean, for this, you had mentors who had gone through the process of going vegan, but next time you might actually have people who had gone through the process in the vegan pledge, and so we'll, we'll be able to mentor even more specifically. Exactly, and that was my hope from the very beginning, was that these people, at least some of them, would stay vegan and get involved, and we're already seeing that they're coming out to vegan drinks and uh, volunteering at animal rights events. Great, so. and so just in terms of what uh, was going on, it was just uh, you were meeting, uh, I mean, what did the mentoring actually consist of? I understand there was like cooking classes, cooking tips. Did you actually sure. cook together or what happened? Well, the cooking classes were basically cooking demonstrations. Ed Coffin of Eating Consciously did one and Rachel Klein of Miss Rachel's Pantry did another. And the pledge participants watched the cooking class, asked questions and tried out all the food afterwards. And then they tried making, I know a lot of them tried making the same things at home. And as far as the mentorship, that sort of took place outside of the pledge meetings. So the, the very first meeting we had all mentors show up to meet and greet their pledge participants. And after that they were available by email, by phone, to answer questions. They all checked in on their uh, mentees regularly and just were doing everything possible to make sure that the pledge participants all had a really productive experience with the pledge. Great. Well, let me just ask one last uh, question. The, the concept of uh, going vegan for 30 days, I mean, the attraction is they're only committing for to like do this on a, on a test run basis, but obviously um, you're not, you don't hide the fact that you would like them to try it and then continue. Do you think that that's the best model for getting people to go vegan, or is it something that will work for some people and not for others, or are there other... Uh, ways of kind of spreading the word and getting people to make that that connection? That's a really tough question because, it, you know, I'm just one person. I can't tell you what the best way is to help people go vegan. It's certainly a way that worked really well this time. Um, people were really enthusiastic about it. Definitely the fact that it was only a 30-day commitment helped people. But at the end of the pledge, on the very last day at our meeting, I explained to all of the participants that we were going to have monthly reunions so that they could come back and get together in a social setting mm -hmm. with the other people that they met we through the pledge. And everyone was really excited about that. So right. we're, we're continuing with a lunch at a scene market. Great. Great. Well, it sounds uh, like a, a wonderful program, and we look forward to checking back in with you. Uh, perhaps next year and seeing how that's going. And thanks for talking with us on VegCast. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Okay, as we're wrapping this up, I just want to say congratulations to Will Tuttle, a VegCast fave, a frequent uh, musical guest here and author of The World Peace Diet, the book that went to number one on Amazon over this past weekend uh, with the help of a lot of uh, people on their blogs, on Facebook and Twitter and coordinated buying. Uh, it was great to see that out there getting before the eyeballs of hundreds of thousands of people who may not have given a single thought to the connection between nonviolent eating and uh, nonviolence in general and nonviolence in the world 
And uh, that was just a great effort. And maybe that's a model for how we can get that message out. Stay tuned on that. All right, that is going to do it for VegCast 79. And before we go, I want to thank Jonathan Balcombe for talking with us about Second Nature, the book just now out from Macmillan. I also want to thank Yvonne Smith for giving us permission to play her new track. Stay tuned here to get the latest Yvonne Smith music and news. And thanks also to Layla Fussfeld for talking with us about the Vegan Pledge, and of course, thanks to you for downloading and or subscribing to VegCast. And until next time, please get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.